Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Zamprin. Not capitalizing on tax refunds and benefits could cost Canadians millions of dollars. Ontario has a long way to go on Indigenous education. Joe Biden wants to finish the job. Learn about the Wild Outside program. There's a Canadian that has finally won the title of World's Strongest Man. And we're going to have you smiling on the GMH podcast. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. We know Monday is the tax day deadline. It is looming large and for many people and for Canadians who rely on food banks, well, they could be leaving millions of dollars on the table by not realizing that they could capitalize on tax refunds and and tax benefits. And that's where Food Banks Canada comes in. And here to talk about it is the CEO of Food Banks Canada, uh, Kirsten Beardsley. Kirsten, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm I'm fantastic, and I'm really happy to learn that Food Banks Canada saved Canadian food bank users a ton of money last year. Exactly. So we saw 4,500 clients come through our tax clinics, um, which meant that eight over 18 million dollars was back in the pockets of low income folks across the country, and so that's why it's such a critical program and an exciting one to talk about. That's huge, and I mean, uh, these days every dollar counts. That's exactly right. So what we're seeing right now across the country is the highest level of food bank use. So many people are struggling to make ends meet. And as you said, people are leaving money on the table, benefits that they're entitled to that can make the difference between having enough money to put food on the table or, you know, a trip to the food bank. And so we're trying to encourage as many people as possible to get to file their taxes um, and to make sure that they're not leaving money behind. So how do these tax clinics work at food banks across the country? So it's food banks, it's other community organizations, and really it's, you know, a lot of people get skeptical about filing their taxes. It's They can be nervous if they haven't filed in a few years, they think they're going to be penalized. So it works because they have trust with the organization they're going with. So, you know, if they've been to the food bank before, they know the people. Um, and then really the volunteers there walk um, the person through the process, make it really simple and easy for them so that it's not um, it's not a struggle. And then um, they're entitled to benefits. I have this great story. We had one client last year. Um, didn't file their taxes for 10 years. Oh, wow. And then um, when they w- worked through the program, they received $14,000 in unclaimed benefits. And that's a life-changing amount when you're really living on sort of the edge of, of financial viability. Wow, that is incredible. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Kirsten Beardsley, the CEO of Food Banks Canada. We're talking about the tax deadline on Monday and how uh, a lot of people uh, who rely on food banks could be leaving millions of dollars on the table and uh, through these uh, tax clinics at, uh, well, food banks and other organizations throughout the country, they're saving people, as you just heard, a lot of money. Um, In regards to food banks themselves, how are they holding up this spring? So unfortunately, I'm sure you've you've heard that, um, you know, we've been talking about how food bank use was the highest it's ever been over the last few months. It continues to climb. Um, We had high food bank use heading into the pandemic. Obviously, the pandemic threw us all for a loop. And now with the cost of living, we're just seeing more and more people not able to um, pay all their bills at the end of the month and having to turn to food banks. A lot of people coming to food banks for the first time. Um, we're seeing a growth um, in the number of people with employment, so people with jobs having to use the food bank. So times are tough. 
Um, I know food banks are tougher and will meet the need, but it's certainly not an easy time. And that's why programs like this, which get as much money into people's pockets who need it, are so critical um, because that's what we need. We need people to have the income, um, the money that they that they are owed and eligible for so that they can go grocery shopping. As we know, the summer months are usually a big challenge as well due to a lack of donations during that time. Are, are there any plans in place to mitigate that impact? Yeah, we're coming together as a network, as a food bank network, to make sure that uh, folks are uh, fed and have the food that they need. I do, I must say, you know, it is important for folks who aren't um, as critically affected by their, you know, the financial situation to make sure you are supporting your local food bank um, because they need us more than ever right now. And as you mentioned, you know, more and more people are using food banks than ever before. What is the outlook for the rest of the year? Do you see some improvements, some alleviation in the number of people accessing food banks? Well, I mean, I'd love to be optimistic. Unfortunately, I think we're, we're headed into some tough times. It depends on how the economy goes. What we do know is that if there is, you know, a recession, if we see job loss, food banks will be called on again um, to to deal with that. And what we know about historical recessions is that food bank use climbs and it doesn't come back down just as, you know, as soon as the economic indicators regulate again. We are dealing, you know, we have a five, sometimes 10 year horizon of dealing with the aftermath of, of economic difficulties. And so um, unfortunately, I think we're dealing with some difficult times. Uh, and that's why, you know, we, we're approaching it from all angles, right? We know community support is so critical, but we also know getting people access to these benefits is so critical. We're not doing, you know, just the same old thing. We're trying to make sure that we're approaching it from different different, um, different angles and making sure people have food. That makes a lot of sense. And we wish you and all the food banks in this country uh, the best of luck as the spring and the summer uh, comes about. Kirsten, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Kirsten Beardsley is the CEO of Food Banks Canada. And here's another incredible stat. And she had a few of them (laughs) during our chat. But over 90% of food bank clients who filed their taxes last year, over 90%, received a refund that otherwise would have gone unclaimed. Again, money left on the table. You certainly don't want to do that at tax time, especially if you find yourself having to access a food bank. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There's a new report out from the group People for Education that shows that uh, while Ontario has made uh, some strides in Indigenous education over the last decade, there is a lot more work that needs to be done. So People for Education unleashed its uh, Ontario School Survey, its annual survey, that uh, really shows some schools have developed, you know, some pretty strong partnerships with Indigenous communities. Others, though, say they need more support, whether it's from their own school board or whether it's from the education ministry. Uh, Annie Kidder is the executive director with People for Education and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Annie, welcome back to the show. How are you? I am very well. Thank you very much for having me. So let's start with what is happening in schools. How have we done in terms of educating our kids about Indigenous uh, peoples and, and their history? Um, pretty well, let's put it that way. There has been a a substantial increase in the proportion of schools who are uh, providing professional development for school staff on Indigenous education. There are nearly double the, over the last 10 years, the proportion of high schools that are offering an Indigenous studies course. Uh, There are many more schools who are making connections with, um, 
Indigenous uh, community organizations. So there is a lot going on, and there's been a huge change over the last uh, 10 years. 15 school boards now are replacing the compulsory of grade 11 English course with an Indigenous-focused course. Um, so advancements are being made all around. I think that there's, you know, people understand that it's very important that we are uh, providing the education that will make a difference to Indigenous students and also providing the education that will make a difference to all students in terms of, uh, as you, exactly as you said, understanding more about Indigenous history and the um, and culture and the and, and the contributions that Indigenous people have made over many thousands of years uh, to uh, our world. So where are we following down? What improvements must we see going forward? I think where, uh, you know, but there was the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, that happened eight years ago now, I guess, um, that made very, very clear calls to action, lots of them to do with education. And there we have not quite uh, met those. We haven't totally implemented those. And I think the two main places we can see, one of them is the importance of working with Indigenous partners. Um, and we one big misstep happened last spring where there was science curriculum uh, being introduced, a new science curriculum for all of elementary school. There had been a partnership with Indigenous um, experts on it. Uh, and then the government, the Minister of Education, Minister's Office, suddenly and unilaterally uh, took out uh, 16 expectations that were in the science curriculum that had to do with Indigenous ways of knowing and seeing. And that's an example of not working well uh, with Indigenous um, partners. I think the other place we're really slow, and I know this sounds boring, but it's really important, um, we've been, we're still slow on data collection. So we still can only estimate how many Indigenous students there are in provincially funded schools. And it's important to note the vast majority, 84% of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit students are go to school in provincially funded schools in downtown Hamilton, in Toronto, in Thunder Bay, uh, you know, in schools that are run by, by school boards. And often, and we don't know enough about uh, where those kids are and who those kids are. So we're we're behind in that way, too. That seems like the easiest thing to solve, though. Wouldn't you just put out a survey to all the students to say, hey, <laughs> are you Indigenous? Do, I, do, I, do you identify as Indigenous? That seems to be the simplest uh, one. Well, you know what? It's, it's great that you put it that way. And yes, uh, th that survey has gone out um, and asking students to self-identify. Uh, and right now, about 50,000, 50,400 or so students have self-identified across the province. But when we look at the difference between that and uh, data from Statistics Canada, uh, according to the ministry themselves, they say the, the number's more likely to be uh, over 78,000 students. There's been quite a bit of controversy. This has to do with um, surveying students about we we are behind on all of our demographic data and race-based data. Some people got very, well, I don't know what, worried, hesitant uh, about the student surveys that were going out because they asked students all about themselves because it is important that we know all about all students. Um, and so there have been objections made and it has slowed down the process. But having data is really important and really makes a difference in terms of, you know, then you can know whether programs are effective or who they're more effective for or less effective for. And, and it has been problematic. And you have to have a serious push 
uh, from the government. We, we just had big new legislation. Somehow equity has been, there's no, uh, there's, it doesn't point to equity at all. And partly it's, it is important to have data because then you can actually understand whether there are equitable outcomes for all students. Lots of great points from Annie Kidder, Executive Director with the People for Education. Annie, always appreciate your time on the show. Thanks. Okay, thanks a lot. Okay, bye-bye. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. U.S. President Joe Biden has officially launched his re-election campaign. He uh, issued a a pre-recorded video yesterday on his social media and is asking Americans to give him another four years to finish the job. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead we have more freedom or less freedom, more rights or fewer. I know what I want the answer to be, and I think you do too. This is not a time to be complacent. That's why I'm running for re-election. All right, here we go. Jennifer Johnson is our Washington correspondent for Global News and joins us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Jennifer, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm great. Thank you. This was not a big surprise. How How is the announcement being received by Americans? Well, I think you're right. It wasn't a big surprise. He's been hinting that he would run for re-election uh, for the past several months. Uh, you know, it's interesting you ask how it's playing down here. I would say that the president's approval rating hasn't been great. Um, he's been definitely polling below 50 percent, but those numbers are improving. I think the biggest concern for Democrats is his age, is Joe Biden's age. Um, and, you know, if he if he were to, to serve a full four-year term, but reelected and, and serve out those full four years, he would be 86, um, which is, you know, <laughs> it's not young. It's getting up and there. And so I think the biggest, <laughs> it's getting up there. It's the biggest concern among Democratic voters is his age. But, you know, there's also a great concern about what Republicans are doing lately in the country in terms of women's rights, voters' rights, blacks' rights, LBGTQ, you know, community rights. So I think that they do believe he's the biggest name in the Democratic Party. The Democrats believe he's the biggest name in the Democratic Party and has the best chance against a Republican opponent. In saying that, is there a faction of the Democratic Party that was secretly hoping that Biden would say, hey, listen, after about 50 years, a half a century in politics, I'm done? Well, I think there was, and I think the age thing was was the biggest concern. This is going to be a tough campaign. I mean, the 2020 campaign, there was a lot of Zoom meetings. There was a lot of, you know, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, there was a lot of rallies that were, you know, basically through Zoom. And this time around, he's going to have to be on the road a lot more, and it's going to be difficult given his age. The problem was there was no you know, there was nobody standing out other than Joe Biden in the Democratic Party who could fill the shoes and say, yeah, I'm ready to run for president. And Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, has, you know, quietly hinted about it, but nobody was really a standout. So I think he decided, you know, he needed to do this. We have a couple more minutes with Jennifer Johnson, Washington correspondent for Global News, talking about U.S. President Joe Biden launching his re-election campaign yesterday. You mentioned it. He he would be 86 if he wins re-election and completes his second term. Is that something that the Republicans are going to focus hard on during the next campaign? Well, Donald Trump definitely talks about Joe Biden's age and his you know, inability to be articulate and his mistakes. I mean, I have to say that Joe Biden has a very difficult schedule. I look at his travel schedule every week and I said, wow, this is a lot for anyone at any age. Um, I mean, that's definitely going to be something that Donald Trump is going to, you know, take shots at. 
it's interesting. Joe, uh, Ron DeSantis is not, uh, we haven't seen him really campaigning, so it's hard to say whether or not that will become a thing with him nor Nikki Haley. Those are the other two Republicans who are right now running on the Republican side for the presidency. But, um, you know, I mean, it's definitely going to be a thing. But I don't, as I said, I, I, there was no other Democrat around that was coming, you know, going forward and, and you know, standing out from the pack. Yeah. Uh, in our final minute together, um, Joe says he wants to finish the job. What unfinished business does he have? Well, I think that he would like to see an immigration reform bill pass. He would like to see the, you know, a chance of the Supreme Court providing or Congress providing more abortion access for women. Um, he's very concerned about voter districts that have been reconfigured by Republican state legislatures. He definitely would like an assault weapons ban passed. He's got more work to do in terms of curbing inflation in the United States, um, health care. You know, there's still a lot to be done, but I think the rights being taken away in terms of banning books and um, you know, things going on in Florida, like getting rid of African-American studies, um, abortion rights. Those are great concerns of the Democratic Party. And I think, you know, that's high on his agenda. It is a pretty large and important to-do list. Jennifer, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me, Rick. Jennifer Johnson, a Washington correspondent for Global News. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Do you have a teenage child or a uh, teenager as a grandchild who's figuring out what the heck are they going to do, maybe even with their free time, let alone a career? I'm certainly in that club, that is for sure. <laughs> I'm sure many of you out there, you know, nodding your head. Yeah, yeah, sounds like my kid, sounds like my grandchild. Well, Canadian Wildlife Federation's Wild Outside program is coming to Hamilton. And here to talk about it is Kira Balson, the Youth Leadership Manager with Wild Outside. Kira, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Tell us about this Wild Outside program. Yeah, so Wild Outside, it's a, a program run by the Canadian Wildlife Federation, funded by the Government of Canada uh, through the Canada Service Corps. And this is a program for 15 to 18-year-olds uh, with the goal of inspiring youth to develop a passion for conservation, awareness of the natural environment, and a deeper appreciation for wildlife. So how do you do that? Yeah, so uh, through three main modes. So there's outdoor adventure, things like canoeing, kayaking, uh, scavenger hunts and horseback riding. Uh, there's service projects, so giving back to the community, things like pollinator gardens, building bat boxes and birdhouses, um, doing shoreline cleanups. Uh, and we also have speaker series. So we have expert speak speakers come uh, speak to the youth about topics of interest. So it could be species at risk or uh, climate change, things like that. Uh, can you pick and choose what you want to do or do you, or do you just offer the program and uh, hey kids, you're doing everything under the sun? Yeah, so uh, registration is open year round. It's drop-in style. Uh, there are no costs to join. Uh, and so youth can, can attend activities as they go. Usually during the school year, they happen on the weekends, sometimes in the evenings, and then they really pick up during the summertime and we have more events and activities going on throughout the week. Uh, and so youth may join whenever they wish. Um, the goal is for all of the youth to complete 120 service hours uh, by the time they complete the program. 
We're chatting with Akira Balson, Youth Leadership Manager with Wild Outside with the Canadian Wildlife Federation. It's a program that is uh, no cost. It's barrier-free, which is great as well, a, a conservation initiative that, uh, you know, opens your eyes to what is out there. And, and speaking of which, what kind of feedback do you get from the teens who have participated in this program? Oh, wow. We've had, um, yeah, everything under the sun. We've had some youth who uh, recently arrived in Canada from Ukraine. Uh, we've had youth who have had no experience in the outdoors, and now they're avid outdoors people and, and really excited to get out there and get their hands dirty. Uh, to see the impact that it's had on youth has been really, really incredible. And they're giving back to the community as well. Why this age group, 15 to 18? Um, why are you focusing on those particular years? Well, I think this is a, a special time when youth are trying to figure out what they're going to do next. Uh, and so a program like this is a great opportunity to open open their eyes to see what's out there and, and uh, find inspiration for a future career, potentially. And, and so what is out there? What could this potentially lead to as a career for some of these individuals? Yeah, so somebody who's interested in conservation could go uh, into education, like me, for example, um, inspiring others to, to develop a passion for conservation and nature. It could be things like working for a land trust uh, and doing uh, invasive species plant removal or uh, remediation projects. It could be working with wildlife rehab centers and working directly with animals uh, or at zoos or national parks, uh, camps. All sorts of things. So I have a teen at home who's not particularly fond of bugs. You know, neither am I. But would he have an issue with this program? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> As I said, it's drop-in style. So if there were any activities that involved bugs, uh, he'd have the option to opt out. All right. Well, that's good news. Uh, Kira, <laughs> if someone wants more information, how can they go about uh, getting that? Uh, please visit wildoutside.ca. Excellent stuff. Well, uh, good luck with uh, this year's program. It sounds like it's uh, going to be a barn burner once again. Wonderful. Thank you so much. That is Kira Olson, Youth Leadership Manager with Wild Outside. Again, more info, as she mentioned, wildoutside.ca. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. For the first time ever, the title of World's Strongest Man belongs to a Canadian. Yeah, that's right. Mitchell Hooper of Barry, he's a University of Guelph alum, beat out nine other competitors from around the world in various feats of strength in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina last weekend to grab the title and the red and white maple leaf flying high and proudly in this event. Mitchell the Moose Hooper is joining us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mitchell, good morning. How are you? Yeah, good morning. What an introduction. How good does that sound? Eh? Man, wh what does it feel like to be the world's strongest man? It's really funny. It's it's hard to comprehend. It's hard to wrap your head around because that's it's sort of something that you would say as, as an arrogant 18-year-old or something. So to actually be able to say the statement and have it be true is uh, pretty surreal. How did this all come about? How did you get into this? Uh, I'm a, I'm a, I own a kinesiology clinic in Barrie, and uh, when I sort of was getting into the field, I thought that I should experience everything that I ask anyone else to do in the clinic, whether that be aerobic fitness or strength training. So I started with um, with distance running, uh, ran a few marathons, and then uh, 
when I felt like I had a good grasp on aerobic training, then I went over and did uh, strength training, strength sports, and one thing led to another, and here we are. So this was actually, uh, I was just doing some background uh, research yesterday on this, and this was the second time that you've uh, attended a World Strongest Man competition. Uh, the last time around was in 2022 when you finished in eighth place. How did you go from eighth to first? Well, I'm, I'm so new to the sport, really. I've only been doing it about three and a half years. And uh, there was a lot of areas to improve. In fact, last year in the, in the finals, I, about half of the events I had never even done before. So I was sort of going in uh, handicapped in a way. And this year, with, with the year that I had in Strongman, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be able to uh, <clears throat> put out on my social media, I need a truck to pull or I need a, uh, I need a big wood log built. And, and people rally together and Thankfully, this year I was exposed to everything, and I think that made a big difference. That is pretty cool. You went to uh, dominate the qualifying round. You won three of the final rounds, six events outright, which is a huge accomplishment. Uh, what, what does this do for you going forward in, in not only these competitions, but just in your daily life? Yeah, I mean, it, <clears throat> it changes your life, really. Um, and I'm not sure I can anticipate exactly how it's going to change, but um, I've been told by a lot of people at home that uh, there's lots of news stories going on about me, that I'm in the, the papers, I'm in some magazines right now, and uh, I think I'm going to have to get used to getting recognized, uh, but it just opens a lot of doors. It gives you a lot of leverage to do with your life what you hope to, and for me, that's inspiring as many people uh, to, to move, to get out, get healthy, and uh, hopefully impact as many people by one or two degrees as possible. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Mitchell the Moose Hooper, a Barry-based strongman who is the strongest man in the world. He won the title of World's Strongest Man uh, last weekend in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, the first ever Canadian to do so. Uh, apart from winning the title of World's Strongest Man, what else came along with that? Uh, in, what do you mean exactly? I.e. E. money? <laughs> yeah, trophy? Like, what did you get? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, there's there's cash prize to it, there's a trophy to it, there's a lot of sponsor recognition, a lot of uh, a lot of social media traction, a lot of business traction and apparel sales and all of that. So, um, like I said, I think this is something that that changes your life quite a bit. Uh, you mentioned some of the training that you were doing, pulling trucks, pulling logs. What about the diet? What were you eating every day, and how were you using that fuel to become the world's strongest man? Well, I think it's uh, it's a bit of a fallacy uh, from strongmen of the past that we have to eat insane amounts. Uh, I eat about 5,500 calories a day. It's a few protein shakes, uh, a couple of pre-made lunches, and a fairly standard dinner. Uh, the, the comment that most people give me is that I don't eat as much as they think I would, uh, just because when you habitualize things and you become efficient with them, uh, I've got other things to do in my day other than to eat. So thankfully for me, it's pretty reasonable. Not only with this competition, and you will know more than anyone else, not only is it a physical test of your strength, but there is a mental game, uh, a part of this as well. You have to be mentally strong to win this sort of thing. Yeah, in, in both an acute and a chronic sense. In the acute sense, in an individual event, taking uh, taking something like a pain out of your head or exhaustion out of your head just to get something done as quickly as possible or for as far as possible, uh, but also in a more chronic sense where World's Strongest Man happens over five days and there's a lot of time to, to get into your own head to, to have uh, self-doubt and difficult difficult thoughts um, and staving those off is, is particularly important for 
uh, winning a competition like this. So now that you've won the title of World's Strongest Man, uh, that in and itself is a huge accomplishment. Do you plan to defend this title next year? Yeah, of course. I'm only three years into the sport. I feel like I, I personally still have a long way to improve. And for me, the, the thing that I'm pulling most from the whole sport um, is getting to the, the peak capability of what I can do. So until I feel like I've got there, I'll keep pushing ahead. Well, if anyone out there needs uh, someone to accomplish a big feat of strength, maybe they have a fence to build or you know a, a truck to move in their, in their backyard, maybe they'll give you a call, Mitchell. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll let them know my rights. <laughs> Mitchell, appreciate the time. Congratulations. All right. Thank you. Mitchell the Moose Hooper, unbelievable, world's strongest man, is a Canadian. And he's from Barrie, and he's an alumnus from the University of Guelph. What a fantastic story. Congratulations to him, and we'll uh, certainly follow his career along if he continues to repeat that feat. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I am sure, I'm 100% confident that you will be smiling next week because you'll be able to well, not only consume a tasty treat, but give to a phenomenal cause as well. Because next week is Smile Cookie Campaign Week at Tim Hortons. Yeah, it launches on Monday. And once again, as you probably already know, money that is raised through the sale of these treats go to local charitable organizations such as uh, Food for Kids, Hamilton Food Share, Empowerment Square, just to name a few. Yana Fazai is the Manager of Community Development and Partnerships with Empowerment Squared and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Yana, good morning. How are you today? Oh, Rick, good morning. And to everyone who's listening this morning, I am wonderful. I'm looking outside my window, my cherry blossom, and it's a bit confused. <laughs> How but so? other than that, I'm doing good. Well, it doesn't know if today's going to be a, a day where we have to wear our jackets when we go outside or a beautiful, sunny day. Hopefully, it's a sunny one. So that's your <laughs> that's your barometer for what you're wearing today. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much for having me this morning. Um, I want to start by expressing gratitude to the CHML family and community for having us again this year to be able to share about the exciting news about the Smile Cookie campaign happening nationally across Canada. Well, it's our pleasure because we know that a lot of money is raised and uh, and this money is needed for amazing programs that are de- delivered by organizations such as Empowerment Squared. So let's begin there. Tell us about and refresh our listeners' memories on what Empowerment Squared does. Oh my gosh, absolutely. So Empowerment Squared is a very unique organization here in Hamilton. It's a registered charity, and it was founded in 2007. And it was founded out of the need or to respond to the needs um, that newcomer communities were facing, um, the needs such as, you know, lack of support network when they first come to Canada, the culture shock, um, not being able to speak the language, lack of understanding of the education system, and of course the employment barriers that many newcomers face when they first come to Canada during that time of transition. Um, We were founded by our executive director, Leo Johnson, in 2007. He himself was a newcomer from West Africa, his home of Liberia. And um, as you may have heard the story before, one day he woke up and he was you know, a young person on his way to school, and the Civil War had broken out. And on that day, he never returned back home. And for the next few years, he would live in different, in different refugee camps um, in Ghana and in Sierra Leone uh, before he had the greatest gift and opportunity to come to Canada as an unaccompanied minor, where he had to figure out a lot of things on his own. So as an organization, we're really invested in delivering 
programs um, to support young people to build their confidence, to empower them to make self and uh, healthy and safe decisions in their day everyday life, and of course to support them with their educational journey. So we're doing an, an access to mentorship. So we're doing some really important work here in Hamilton to support the next generation of Canadians to live the life that they've always dreamed of. So who, that they can and should here in Canada. Who is uh, accessing the programs and services of Empowerment Squared? Give us a, a visual, paint us a picture of who's accessing the programs. Yeah, absolutely. So the programs are available to young people from the age of five all the way up to 18. So we're talking about children in elementary school, school and high school who are really struggling in our education system. And they're struggling because... Perhaps they lived or were born in a refugee camp and they've never had an opportunity to be in a formal classroom. So when they're coming to Canada, they're placed in a grade based on their age rather than their academic ability. So our programs are designed to help children with basic literacy, to help empower them to read and to write, um, and also to dream and to think about their educational aspirations. What do they want to be when they're older and help create a plan for them to get there? The goal is really post-secondary education, so access to college, university, and the trades. That is amazing, and I'm sure that a lot of children in this community are are better for it once they visit and experience what Empowerment Squared has to offer. Our guest this morning on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Yana Faisai, the Manager of Community Development and Partnerships at Empowerment Squared. You can check them out online at empowermentsquared.org. All right, let's get to the, the Tim Hortons Smile Cookie campaign. This is the 27th annual campaign for Tim Hortons, and uh, four years of partnering with uh, you guys and Tim Hortons in Bimbrook. So what's going on this year? That's right. That's right. So every year, Empowerment Squared is the lucky recipient of the Smile Cookie um, fundraiser. And we're so grateful. And we want to express gratitude to our friends um, at the Tim Hortons Bimbrook. Um, if you've never visited them on Highway 26, please do so. They've chosen to work with us in partnership for the past four years to raise funds that will enable us to continue improving the lives of children and youth here in our community. So since 2020, we've been able to, to raise over $100,000, um, which is directly invested back in our community. And what I mean by 100000 is we are baking, we are decorating, we're packaging, and we're also um, helping folks pick up their cookies 100,000 of them. And this year, we're hoping to meet our goal of 30,000 cookies. Um, and we're hoping that your community listening this morning can support by uh, pre-ordering your cookies, either at Tim Horns Bimbrook or at ironpowermentsquare.org. Uh, buy them for your friends. Buy them for your colleagues. They're such a sweet and meaningful treat. And help expose the people in your life to the important work that charities across Canada are doing uh, during this really important month. And, of course, you can also buy uh, boxes of cookies uh, next week as well, May 1st to the 7th. 100% of the money that is raised goes to amazing organizations like Empowerment Squared. Yana, really appreciate your time this morning. Best of luck with this year's campaign. And uh, we'll all have a smile on our face, certainly, next week for sure. Thank you so much, Rick. Thank you very much. Have a lovely day, everyone. You Bye-bye. too. Yana Fazai is uh, the Manager of Community Development and Partnerships at Empowerment Squared. More details online, empowermentsquared.org. You know, this Tim Hortons campaign is phenomenal. I mean, absolutely phenomenal.
in which all the money that's raised goes to charitable organizations like Empowerment Squared, as I mentioned, Hamilton Food Share, Food for Kids, hospitals, more than 600 charities, hospitals, and community programs across Canada benefit from this program. $15 million was raised last year, $87 million since this all started in 1996. So support uh, the Smile Cookie campaign uh, with pre-orders up to Sunday, all week long next week. And uh, let's make uh, uh, these local organizations uh, that much better. We can uh, we can all chip in for sure. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode episode and make sure you rate and review.